0: All right, so let's get moving into a biblical case for limits on government. What has been the Christian development of the relationship between church and state? This is talked about so much these days, and people have kind of dug in their trenches and aren't going to move, but we're going to try and work through tonight why we stand where we stand as thoughtfully and as methodically as we can. And then we're gonna get into how we as individuals and as a collective body, as the church respond to these things. What has been the Christian development throughout history, this relationship? What does God have to do with how people respect the state? Francis Schaeffer made a very interesting um, observation in the last century when he said, you must understand that those in our present material energy, in other words, in a world without God, that's all just material and energy, chance-oriented generation have no reason to obey the state. Let's underline this tonight. Secularists have no reason to obey the state. Why do they do it? Francis Schaeffer says. That is... uh, except, here's the only reason, except that the state has the guns and has the patronage. That is the only reason they have for obeying the state. A material energy, chance orientation, gives no base, no reason, except force and patronage as to why citizens should obey the state. In contrast, the Christian, the God-fearing person is not like that. The Bible tells us that God has commanded us To obey the state. And that's where we start. We start there. We're going to notice uh, a few things about Jesus' explanation on limitations. We've already read the text where he was confronted by the political and religious leaders of his time about whether or not it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, in which they revealed their own hypocrisy by giving him a Roman coin with the idolatrous image on it. And what he said, remember what he said, famous line, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, it's interesting because our culture today seems to think that this is the model, okay? So God has a sphere of the world that he deals with. It might be in the church, but then Caesar has a sphere of the world as well. And Jesus is commanding, according to certain teachers, that we need to render to Caesar what Caesar's. So when Caesar tells us, How, what to do for the sake of our own health, we had better listen to him because that's his realm and it is in parallel with, well, our realm over here, which is God's and the spiritual realm and we're all about the gospel and about eternal life and so on. We're not about physical health so much, so that's Caesar's realm. We're just going to listen to whatever Caesar tells us and we're going to do whatever Caesar tells us to do. Well, that's not what Jesus was saying. Here's what Jesus was actually saying. (laughs) Render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God's what's God's. God is the supreme authority. God is over Caesar. That's going to be backed up in the New Testament as well. God is the one who Caesar eventually answers to. All aspects are under the kingship, the ultimate divine authority, of God. Certain things only belong, such as taxes, only belong to Caesar because God allows it. God raises up kings, God tears kings down. The kingdoms of the world come and go, and God remains the same through it all. Well, we're going to move to Luther. Luther had an idea or a viewpoint that came right out of his concerns about reformation, about the gospel, about justification by faith, and so on. One of them was basically that the Pope and the Catholic Church should not be the ones to determine whether or not you and I have eternal life. That comes from God himself. And as he was studying Romans, uh, Paul's epistle to the Roman Church, He recognized that and he recognized this is a problem for the Pope, for the leader of the Catholic Church to have this kind of control. And so he saw the idea of two kingdoms, two kingdoms, two realms. Both belong to God. This is very important. The first realm is the state, the first kingdom. The second realm is the church, the second kingdom, Now, we're going to go through this one by one here. Uh, The first kingdom, the state, it serves and deals with earthly matters. Okay, now this is just, again, this is just part of the development that was coming. Uh, Secondly, it was concerned with the preservation of the world. And Luther also included things like marriage, family, property, economics, and occupations. Now, I don't necessarily agree with everything that Luther came up with, but you can see that it was... Really necessity that gave birth to invention here, and by invention, I mean theological development. had Luther not been thinking in terms of hey the church has too much power, and the church 's power needs to be limited, he would not have come to these conclusions or started to work this out, and this is going to be worked out through generations that come. Uh, but this is quite, this is important very important as well to know that this was a temporal kingdom okay the state in his view, was only here for a time. It was temporal. However, Luther's second kingdom, the church, is spiritual and eternal in nature. It is really a reflection of God's future full kingdom. It serves and deals with heavenly matters. So the Pope shouldn't be telling the king what to do, in a sense. It's kind of what he was saying. It shouldn't have this kind of power over people. It was also concerned, with, or, or concerned, it shouldn't be concerned with civil justice, that kind of thing. It was also concerned with eternal life and redemption. Now, Luther believed, this is important, it didn't all work out in his lifetime, by the way, just so you know, but he believed these were distinguished, but not divided. God's still over both. He's still over both, and he didn't fully work it out in his lifetime. In fact, it didn't work, because it didn't work. And he eventually saw that, well... The Lutheran Church was basically ruled by the local governments that it was a part of. So there was some answering that went on to the state. Well, that was Lutheran. Of course, the reformers, Calvin, uh, Zwingli, all those guys, they all had different takes on this. They had different angles on it. The Anabaptists were also involved. Uh, and the Baptists at that time, around that time, they were all working this out and it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a mess. But I want to move forward uh, to closer to our generation to a man named Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper lived um, the early 20th century. He died in 1920. He was born in 1837. Now this guy was interesting. For a number of reasons. One was he was an intellectual and a theologian. Yes, that's great, but he wasn't sitting in an ivory tower, which is, there's nothing wrong with theologians that work, uh, that do that deep thinking and work out theological issues. But he was unique because he actually sat in, uh, he, he sat in as a member of parliament in the Netherlands from 1874 to 1901 and then became the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. So he was not just a theologian, but he was a politician, which meant that as he wrote and worked out his theology, he was always working it out as what we're going to call a public theology. It was a theology that was done on the run, right? It was something that he was working out as he was moving in parliament for all those years, it was a mixture of politics and theology together. He influenced men like Francis Schaeffer and Cornelius Van Til and Alvin Plantinga and so on. Theology on the run. So what he was trying to figure out was how does theology work out in such things as economics and medical institutions and law and order and so on. And here's very famously what Kuiper said. There's not a square inch in the, round, the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's not a square inch of this whole domain that Christ does not claim to be his. Kuiper believed there were certain spheres of society, and there's where we get, we get from Luther's two kingdoms to Kuiper's three spheres. The first sphere And these fears have to work together and they have to work within their limitations. The first fear is the family. It was actually the first one that was implemented in Genesis, right? Man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and so on. Subdue the earth. Family, the responsibility for forming healthy marriages and raising children and the care of children included education and health. In other words, Kuiper believed that God's design for family was to be the ministry of health, the ministry of education, and the ministry of welfare. It was, up to the, it was the responsibility of families to take care of their own. And if the family couldn't, then it was the church's responsibility, but it was primarily the family's. And he got this from Scripture. It's clear in Scripture that that was the case. First Timothy 5, Paul is instructing Timothy how to deal with widows. Well, if they have families... They are to be cared for by those families. And if they're not cared for by their families, then those families are, whoever's not caring for their widows is worse than an infidel, according to Paul. The focus of other worldviews is on economy, language, laws, religion, logic, science, as a remedy for a stable society. But the Christian worldview is different, isn't it? We looked at this a few weeks ago. The Christian worldview claims that family is the central glue to a stable society. Not all these government enterprises, not bureaucracies, not big buildings and establishments. That has never worked and it never will work. It is families, healthy families that glue society together and make it healthy and strong, that create loyalty. This is why Marx was wrong in the beginning. Why was it World War I when it, when it broke out that the the workers, the working class did not leave their families and join together, unite in rebellion against the, the industrial capitalists. Why didn't they do it? Because they were loyal to their families. Their families glued them together and they were, uh, in other and so they stood for their, their nations, the nations that their families made up. Uh, the second sphere is the church. The church, the primary responsibility of the church is for teaching God's word. How does the church do that? How does the church teach God's word? Well, through interpreting the text and modeling discipleship for obeying what God's word says. So for interpreting the text and applying it to the individual. The church is to lead people to bow to the authority of Jesus Christ over every aspect of life. It's a model of what community is to be about. And community is the primary focus. The New Testament has many metaphors of the church. These are pretty important because, again, they emphasize community. Notice them. Body, bride, army, nation, family, team, temple, flock, feast, hospital, building, field, all of these have ideas of networks, of community, of, of being more than one, of something. This community has an eternal focus and should resemble the coming kingdom of God. It is to be marked by unceasing prayer, unashamed adoration, unapologetic preaching, and unafraid witness. I thought I'd throw those in for you all. See how I work that in? The church leadership is to be honored. Honored. So there is leadership over this sphere. It is to be honored. First Peter 5, Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Hebrews 13:17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The church is responsible for preaching truth about the unseen and yet known realities such as sin and repentance and salvation and judgment to come. The church's primary focus is the care of souls, but secondarily, the care of bodies. That's why if families couldn't take care of health, the church was to do so. And that's the way it used to be in our nation. It used to be the same way. The church had control of health care. It's not so anymore. So we move to the last sphere, and that is the state. And according to Romans 13, we're getting there, we're going to get there soon, the state has two tasks. And it is possible that Paul, by the way, in Romans 13 was responding to an attitude that the state no longer matters at all that Jesus is coming back soon, so why bother? We don't need to obey the state. The first task in Romans 13 of the state is to protect the innocent. Then do what is good, Paul says, and you will receive his approval. They're looking for good, context, good, pardon me, good conduct. Um, protect the innocent. Secondly, the second Responsibility of the state is to punish the guilty. The state, the leader, is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. This would include protection from foreign enemies. Seeking again, as we said before, to invade and destroy personal property. Uh, Paul's description of rulers as God's servant for your good. Most governments, most functioning governments, are actually limited by a constitution that restricts their powers, that gives them so many many powers and that's it, and activities. But you'll notice a trend. That the more secular or the more godless a society becomes, the greater demand for larger government. Government just continues to grow. As God becomes smaller, government becomes bigger. Why do you think it is? And maybe you've heard statements, we got to check ourselves, comments such as, you know the government should really do something about that. Or comments like, You know, there really should be a law made about that. These are clear signs that we are beginning to idolize the government as our savior. And we are failing to ask which sphere of authority has failed that the government is now expected to replace and compensate for. Dr. Jeff Myers said, government may not be the source of most of our problems, but it often makes them worse when it tries to solve them isn't that true? Our rights are God-given, not government-given. The government is commissioned to secure our rights rather than invent them. Secure our rights, not invent them. They are not the origin. So we need to ask about these three spheres. We need to be asking some questions when issues arise, such as lockdowns. In any situation where the government is called to step in, could be abortion, could be marriage, and defining marriage, and so on, Christians must process the issue by asking three simple questions. These questions actually come from, I believe, from Dr. Jeff Myers again. This is his suggestion. The first one, does this issue belong under the responsibility of this sphere? So the government, should it be actually so concerned about our health? Is that their department? Or should parents be concerned about the health of their children and the health of their grandparents and so on? What effect does this decision have on the other spheres? So if government takes over health, what effect does that have on family? If government takes over education, what effect does that have on the family? If government takes over the definition of marriage, what effect does that have on the church? See how this works? When we give authority to one sphere and make it bigger, the other ones get crowded. It's like having three balloons in a bucket. You blow one up larger, the other ones start to get cramped. Like, ooh, I don't have as much freedom as I used to have. That's exactly where we're finding ourselves. That's really the diagnosis of where we are today. And quite frankly, I think it's pretty clear that it's going to take a long time to try and unravel the mess that we're in because these are, right now, they are not three equal spheres, are they? They are not. And it took us, as we've noted, through this entire series, it's taken us decades to get here. You think we're getting out of this tomorrow? It's not going to happen. So what do we do now? Well... We'll look at the answer to that uh, first of all historically, and then biblically. But historically, John Knox is probably one of the one of the more original voices um, that worked through a theology of how to respond to a tyrannical government. He lived under a few of them. He was actually ordained to the priesthood the year that William Tyndale was executed, and uh, he wasn't allowed to speak. Because he was always speaking against the Roman Catholic Church, and they wouldn't let him preach on Sundays. So he decided, okay, I'm not going to preach Sundays. I'll preach Monday to Saturday, and we'll see what happens. And so he would preach the other days of the week, and he'd gain a large crowd. He had a great congregation around him, and uh, he would refute everything that the preachers were saying on Sunday. And of course, as you can imagine, they didn't like it. The only thing that spared his life that time were that French forces invaded Scotland, And he was captured and made a slave, a galley slave for about two years. Uh, He spent as a galley slave before gaining his freedom. And when he gained his freedom, he returned to England and he started preaching again, gained a following. People came from Scotland, they came over to England, they moved, but eventually Mary Tudor took the crown and she was very bloody, they say, in her approach to governing. And so he fled this time and ended up in Geneva. And this is where he really developed his theology of resisting tyranny. And he wrote one of his most famous pamphlets, which was an admonition to England. But Luther and Calvin reserved the right to rebellion only to civil rulers. So during the Reformation, it was only civil rulers that were allowed to rebel against other rulers. In other words, nation against nation kind of thing. Knox took it further and claimed that the ordinary citizen had the right and the responsibility to disobedience and rebellion if the state officials ruled contrary to the Bible. Knox said, kings then have not an absolute power in their regiment to do what pleases them, but their power is limited by God's word. The king is lieutenant to one God whose eyes watch upon him. Scotland eventually became a Protestant country and Samuel Rutherford was greatly affected by Knox's, there we go, there's the statement there, uh, by Knox's writings. And Samuel Rutherford comes along afterwards, uh, 1600 to 1661, and At this time, the Reformation is spread through Western countries as a result of religious noncompliance and civil disobedience. That had been happening for a while now. Samuel Rutherford uh, became rector at St. Andrew's University in Scotland, and he wrote his classic Lex Rex in 1644. The meaning of Lex Rex is the law and the prince. The law and the prince. The basic concept behind it is this, the law is king. The law is the king. There was an assumption in society at that time uh, that because of such things as Romans 13, that um, basically if a king was on the throne, it was because God put him there. So whatever the king said was the law. In other words, the king was above the law. He was making the law. Samuel Rutherford said, that's not true. The law is already there. The king is servant to that. So if the king or government disobey the law of God, they are to be disobeyed. The Parliament of Scotland was meeting actually to condemn him to death. And the only reason he was not executed was because they, he died first. And at that time, yeah, that, that's exactly what was going on. Rutherford basically countered the idea that the king was above the law and said, All men, including the king, are under God's law and never above it. If the king or government disobey the law of God, they are to be disobeyed. A few of Rutherford's arguments, tyranny is satanic. Stop saying it's just ordained by God. It's satanic and failing to resist it is to resist God. Since the ruler is granted power on conditions, the people then have the power to withdraw their endorsement. He also made the argument that the ruler holds his authority in trust for the people. And violation of that trust gives people legitimate basis for resistance. So if the people can no longer trust him to rule adequately, there is reason for resistance. He also suggested levels of resistance. These are informative. The first one was by protest, legal protest if possible. Second one was by fleeing, if possible. That was never good for a nation when half the nation walked out the door and went somewhere else and made their money. Not a great move uh, for the kings in those days, or queens. But but this is unrealistic today, isn't it? Because where are you going to run? Or by force, if there is no other option. But he did believe that someone should only fight if they cannot flee. He used David's flight from King Saul as an example of that. Well, another man comes along, and his name is John Locke. And John Locke, who was raised by Puritans, uh, I'm not exactly sure how religious he was. I don't believe he was, although he was influenced by it. But he took Rutherford's Lex Rex arguments, and he basically, shall we say, he, he secularized them. Okay, he popularized them. He made them palatable for the general public. And uh, he gave four points for a free society. And here they are, you might recognize these. The first one being inalienable rights. What are inalienable rights? What does that mean? It just means they are rights that cannot be alienated from you. They cannot be surrendered. They cannot be transferred. They cannot be taken from you. They're, They're yours because of who you are. Who are you? What makes you who you are? God. You are made in His image. Secondly, government by consent, right? So a government by consent. Again, he just took Rutherford's statements about, uh, you know, gaining the trust of the people. And if you lose trust, well, there's reason not to recognize the government. Um, the third one: separation of powers. And again, putting authorities into their Spheres, where they belong, keeping them there. And finally, the right to resist unlawful authority. The right to resist unlawful authority. You probably recognize most of these because they are in the Declaration of Independence in the United States. Yes, they used John Locke, who was a British philosopher, They used, and a politician, I believe. Uh, they used these four basic points to guide them the American Declaration of Independence, by the way, interesting enough, it must be also noted that all but one of the designers of the Declaration were Christians. Anything stating otherwise is a mere myth. The only non-Christian in the group was Benjamin Franklin, who was a deist who believed that God made the world, then walked away and didn't care about it anymore. He was no longer there, no longer personal, there's no longer a heaven or hell to worry about or judgment. When you die, you die and that's it. So that was their way of kind of saying, yeah, the the world looks created, but bad things still happen, so it can't be that God's still around to care. So that's where deism came from. It was very popular at that time period, in that time period, in the 18th century. All right, so we're moving on to Romans 13. Here we go. I'm kind of setting this up. This gets thrown around a lot these days. Romans 13. It's like the answer to every question about submission to the government and people who want to accuse certain churches of, you shouldn't be standing up that way. You're not loving your neighbor. You're not helping the government, even though it's secular and godless and so on. You're not helping them, Romans 13, right? It's always said, it's never talked, well, what does Romans 13 actually say? Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now there's some things we need to notice. At face value, yes, it does look like he's saying that you should mindlessly obey the government no matter how evil they are, but that's not what he's saying. And it's clear. Right away, it's clear there are difficulties. Let me name a few. And this is how we study the Bible, by the way. We need the Bible to interpret the Bible. We just don't always look at texts at face value. We look at them in their context, in their literary context. So, what was Paul saying before this? Okay, he was talking about how they were to operate within the church, relationships within the church, within the body as a community how they were to love their enemies, how they were to overcome evil with good and so on. All that was before this, and now he moves into the government, which is another type of relationship. But this is how we interpret Scripture. Here's a a few difficulties we need to face. If rulers, let's see, if rulers are not a terror to good conduct, what if that doesn't reflect in reality? And they are a terror to good conduct. What do you do now? What if the government is saying, hey, you stop feeding those Jews. That is against the law. Or you stop paying them and they become a terror to good conduct, Does Romans 13 say, you should obey. We had someone just recently actually <laughs> tell us here that that's exactly what it says, that, that uh, we should go as far as to obey Hitler to see how far it would go. Well, what? That's absurd. That's beyond absurd. I don't even need the Bible to know there's something wrong with that. But Romans 13, here's another difficulty. What if a government does not see themselves as a servant of God? I know Nero, who was on the throne at this time, did not see himself as a servant of God. He did see himself as a, as a servant of the gods or a son of a god and so on. They were all claiming to be a deity of one kind or another, but what if the government does not see themselves as a servant of God? What do we do now? Is he serving God? Is God the creator if evil of evil if he establishes evil governments? That's another question we have to face. Okay, so if he's ordained these evil governments and they're doing evil, and we're saying, be subject to them because God has ordained this, and we're not to resist, we're just to be passive and just let everything play out. How are, here's another one. Paul talks a lot about good and evil, but I'm pretty sure that Paul's definition of good and evil may have been different than Nero's definition of good and evil. It's pretty true. We've looked at Roman culture in previous nights, and we've noticed that Roman ethics were a little bit different than Christian ethics. We saw that. So how are we supposed to define what Paul calls good and what Paul calls evil, and how governments are standing for and awarding good and standing against evil? Bottom line, for Christians to throw around Romans 13 as though it's a simple clarification of blindly obeying the government is... in everything, does not do justice to this text. That's pretty clear at this point. Well, secondly, we notice in this text that God is the final authority. No authority except from God. Verse one, there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So again, God is the ultimate authority. He's over all. Paul's painting a picture here. All authority is only established because God allowed it, not because God endorses everything that they do. We see this play out in the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to execute you or to set you free? And Jesus responds and says, you wouldn't have any authority if it weren't given to you from above. In other words, any authority Pilate had wasn't necessarily from Caesar, it was from God himself. That does, not, that does not mean that what Pilate was about to do was not evil and wicked. does not mean that at all. But God is the ultimate authority, not Caesar. We must recognize that. And as the church, we answer to God before Caesar. That's the order. All right, number three. The leader is a servant, not a God-ordained tyrant. Okay, I've already noted this a little bit, but he's a servant in Romans 13, as he's described. He's a servant. Well, that would mean he's a steward. He's practicing some sense of humility here. To the leaders who use, in fact, It's interesting, it's ironic. If you go back and read the history of uh, in South Africa of the apartheid laws that came out of uh, very strange Dutch Reformed theology at that time, the leaders of those apartheid laws and the government at that time that created laws that separated color and distributed and basically placed, misplaced, people of color from their communities and white people came in and took over and took their communities down and built mansions in their place and so on. The leaders, the government leaders at that time, guess what they were using as a hammer to suggest that we should do everything that they say? They used Romans 13 to say, well, we're ordained by God, so you have to listen to what we say. So just sit down and be quiet. And there were there were leader, uh, church leaders like Desmond Tutu who stood up against that at the time. It's fascinating history. But this has been done over and over again. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar at one point lifted up himself in pride, built a golden statue and everything else. And he has a dream. Daniel tells him what his dream is going to be. He's going to be brought low. And at the end of being brought low, he was actually made to act like an animal in the field. And Nebuchadnezzar testifies, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar had a change of heart. He was humbled by the king of kings. He was humbled by God and he became a servant of God in the matters of civil justice. Rulers, here's the next one. Rulers do not define right and wrong. We ask this, how do we know what's good? How do we know what's bad? Well, it's interesting that Paul, speaking of good and speaking of wrong, he's speaking in idealistic terms. I think it's very clear. This is the ideal form of the state sphere, as Kuiper termed it, right? The sphere of the state, this is what it should look like. This is what it's supposed to function like. Has it always functioned this way? No. This is what it's supposed to function like. And when Paul talks about good, and when Paul talks about wrong and the wrongdoer and so on, he is talking about that which is defined by the law of God, not by Roman law by the law of God. Think about this. When different martyrs were brought into the arena, they were accused of breaking laws of the Roman Empire. They were called antisocial because they wouldn't gather for orgies and parties and so on and join in with all the pornography that was going on in their culture. They were called atheists for not worshiping Caesar as God and therefore they were heretics and must be slaughtered. So in Roman form, good and bad were very different than what Paul means as he's speaking to the Roman church about what is good and what is wrong. Also, of course, people say, well, yes, but Paul was writing at a time when Nero was on the throne. So obviously, he was referring to Nero and he was referring to Nero as the bad guy, the persecutor that we're just supposed to submit to everything Nero says. But what was Nero doing at this time? Most scholars actually agree that uh, the persecution, uh, this was written actually near the beginning of Nero's rule, and persecution under Nero didn't actually begin till the later part of his his rule, of his reign. Uh, As a result of he needed a political scapegoat, and the Christians were sitting ducks, and they become the reason why uh, things happened in Rome at the time. Uh, so that happened later, but at this time, Nero hasn't lost his edge. He hasn't gone off the deep end right now. He's still behaving himself. So that argument is actually a mute argument. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work uh, because of the timing of this. He was not, at this point, classified as a tyrant. Uh, let's balance Paul's writing for just a, a brief moment here. You know, we, we have to understand that Paul, who wrote this about obeying leaders as servants of God who are upholding what's right and judging what's wrong, is the same Paul who wrote multiple times. I have at least five New Testament texts where Paul calls himself a prisoner or describes himself as being in chains. Doesn't it seem kind of ironic that here is a guy who's pretty accustomed to living inside prisons, telling everyone else to obey the law. So again, ironic, no. He's not speaking of both sides of his mouth. He doesn't have any kind of personality disorder here. He's not ignorant to himself, blind to himself. He obviously means something else. Because yes, why was he in prison? Well, for preaching the gospel, yes. Yes. For causing disturbances, maybe? For being a political threat? Yes. Again, we go back to the fact that it was all mixed together. There wasn't this, what's spiritual over here, the gospel, eternal life, and so on, and what's political is over here, and they're separated somehow. When Paul was preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord, he was preaching at the same time that Caesar is not Lord. What are you going to do with a guy like that? Put him in prison and eventually take his head off. It's also interesting, maybe a little bit ironic, that as he refers to the sword of the emperor, the sword of justice in Romans 13, that it was that very sword that would eventually take his head. Ah, uh, We should compare to Peter as well. That'd be a good idea. Peter wrote something similar in 1 Peter 2, be subject For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It's interesting. He's writing to people who have been suffering under persecution at this time, reminding them that it is still important to obey the law as much as you can. But you'll notice that this is the same Peter who also said to Jewish authorities on a previous occasion that we must obey God rather than men. We are going to keep speaking what we're speaking. We're going to keep speaking the the message of the kingdom of God, that it has come in the the person of Jesus Christ, that he is king. It's interesting that Gamaliel, after Peter uh, had said what he said, we must obey God rather than men in Acts 5.29. Gamaliel, uh, when they're trying to figure out what to do with these guys, they're not going to stop. What are we going to do with them? Gamaliel uh, gives them a little bit of advice, gives a little bit of consultation to the Supreme Court at that time, and he basically compares the apostles to other political uprisings that had happened in current events at the time, stating that if they're not of God, their plan's going to fail anyways. So just leave them alone. They're going to self-destruct. But it is interesting that Gamaliel saw them as another political uprising. That is... Fairly key to, to understand. Also, there's this little text called Revelation 13. Interpret the Bible with the Bible. I think you can actually go through, I think John MacArthur did this recently in a sermon. He kind of went through scripture and gave a biblical survey of how Satan hates you as a Christian. And one of the tools that he uses over and over again throughout history to crush Christians, or to crush God's people in general, was Israel in the Old Testament, are kings and governments. In Revelation 13, we see a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads and 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority and so on. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. The whole point being, if I kept reading, it becomes apparent that whether John is describing the Roman Empire or some future or modern empire, the fact is the empire is seen as a beast that is in service to Satan at this point, not a servant of God. So there are two contexts that are going on. And when you see scripture in its entirety, you see the balance between the two. If you're gonna speak about Romans 13, you better speak about Revelation 13 as well. That in one, the government is seen as serving God for civil justice and civil matters in its sphere of authority. In the other, it is seen as a beast that is out of control, serving the dragon and speaking against God. Well, that sounds like a secular totalitarian and global government, doesn't it? With evil intentions. So, what is the biblical model before we move into a response? Well, here is the biblical model that we need to see. God is overall. God is over all. And in spheres of government, we have family, we have church, we have state. They're together, parallel. One does not rise over the other. They work inside their spheres to govern the people of the land. This is biblical principles put into action. All under God's authority for the blessing and benefit of the citizens of a nation. It has happened And it has worked to a degree, although never perfectly. But we are definitely far from that today. So what can the church do? That is a question we want to just look at for the remaining part of tonight. What can we do? You feel a little helpless? Government looks really big. Looks like a beast, doesn't it? It's kind of raging. Never quite know when the hammer's coming down. But What can we do? Well, we are called on mission in this world, not to be overwhelmed, but to seek to do what is put right in front of us, first of all. First of all, we can pray. 1 Timothy 2. Paul tells Timothy, first of all, then I urge, he's saying this in light of Timothy setting up a church structure, Inside the sphere of a church, but here's something inside the sphere of a church that the church can do for the government, and that is to pray. I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires all people, including kings, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We're called to pray for our government, pray for their repentance, pray for their conversion. Yes, you can go ahead and pray for their destruction if they are rebelling openly and not repenting. (laughs) But we are to pray from a standpoint of love. Romans 12, the end of Romans 12 tells us we are not to be overcome by evil. We are to overcome evil with good. But this is a common response to persecution. Acts 4, this happened after they had been beaten by The magistrates, the Jewish leaders of the day and told, don't you ever talk in this name again. You do it, we're gonna kill you and so on. The threats and and everything. The apostles went back, told the church about what was going on and they broke into prayer. You wanna read a good prayer meeting, read Acts 4, 23 to 31. The response they made to persecution, they asked for what? They asked for greater boldness. Isn't that awesome? In the face of the beast, They're just going to pray for greater boldness to keep going. We have Jesus who prayed in the face of an unjust government. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's not that they didn't know what they were doing was wrong. I believe that when Jesus said they don't know what they do, he wasn't saying, oh, they don't realize they're crucifying an innocent man. I think that was pretty obvious. But they have no idea the depth of the sin of what they're doing. They're actually nailing the creator of the world to a cross. Try to annihilate the creator of the universe. They have no idea. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's from a standpoint of mercy. Next, let's let's move on here. Uh, Teach. We are to teach governments. So Felix... In Acts 24, uh, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Um, then he gave orders to the centurion. So Felix was uh, a Roman, uh, in Roman authority, and he said, I will decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. Uh, Paul but have some liberty and so on. After some days, verse 24, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, and they were living in a pretty uh, adulterous relationship, illicit relationship. And he sent for Paul to speak of him, to speak with him about faith in Christ Jesus. Do you remember what Paul told him about three things? Now, this is a great sermon lineup for a guy that could kill you. <laughs> He's in chains, little Paul, standing in front of this guy who has all authority to decide his case and off him. And he says, first of all, number one, Felix, my first point tonight is uh, the point of uh, righteousness. There is a standard of righteousness and you've broken it. You're totally unjust. You've fallen short of it. In fact, the fact that you're sitting right next to Drusilla just is evidence of it. And secondly, my second point tonight is self control. I want to talk to you about self control, Felix, because it's no excuse. You can't use your instincts as an excuse. You can't just say, that's because I was made this way. No, self control. God holds you responsible for your sin and for what you did. And thirdly, Felix, I want to let you know that there is judgment coming for all you've done. I don't know pretty, pretty brave, pretty bold sermon to be giving, but what was Paul doing? He was teaching Felix. He was speaking truth to power, just like the prophets of the Old Testament were speaking truth in the same way, and teaching kings was the same idea. So Eric Metaxas writes about Bonhoeffer's view of the church. The church does nonetheless play a vital role for the state. What is that role? The church must continually ask the state whether its actions can be justified as legitimate actions of the state, as actions which lead to law and order and not lawlessness and disorder. In other words, it is the church's role to help the state be the state. And if the state is not creating an atmosphere of law and order, as Scripture says it must, then it is the job of the church to draw the state's attention to this failing, And if, on the other hand, the state is creating an atmosphere of excessive law and order, it is the church's job to draw the state's attention to that too. And by the way, one of the ways we teach the state to be the state is through civil disobedience, through resistance. More on that in a bit. Next, we are called to stand. Just like Peter, who after they were told... We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, said we must obey God rather than men. That's why we will continue to teach in this name as long as we have breath. Elijah was a good example of someone who stood against authority and spoke truth to power. He did it with Ahab more than once. Multiple times he withstood him. I think the last time was when he withstood him at Naboth's vineyard that Ahab had stolen Again, the state not being the state, but causing lawlessness and disorder rather than law and order. Azariah, King Uzziah, who did something very similar when he tried to burn incense to the Lord, and Azariah comes along and confronts him, he makes a stand. And again, in 1933, think about this, this is way before World War II. Eric Metaxas tells us that Bonhoeffer was declaring it the duty of the church to stand up for the Jews. This would have seemed radical to even staunch allies, especially since the Jews had not begun to suffer the horrors that they would suffer in a few years. Bonhoeffer's three conclusions, that the church must question the state, help the state's victims, and work against the state if necessary, were too much for almost everyone, but for him they were inescapable. In time, he would do all three. Actually brought in um, Niemöller's favorite, famous quote. Niemöller was another uh, churchman uh, that was a colleague of Bonhoeffer's, but he was one of the guys saying, Bonhoeffer, you need to tone it down. Like, calm down, man. This is not that serious. You know, this is not a time to resist. This is a time to obey. This is a time to submit. Until eventually Niemöller... Was one of the last ones left and when he did finally say okay this is serious now this is wrong hitler threw him into a concentration camp where he spent the rest the next seven years before world war ii was finished And it was Niemoller who wrote and said first they came for the socialists and i did not speak out because i was not a socialist and then they came for the trade unionists and i did not speak out because i was not a trade unionist and then they came for the jews and i did not speak out because i was not a jew And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. That's where we find ourselves. Might be a slow, steady increase in totalitarianism, but it's started, and we already hear the same arguments. History just repeats itself, saying, calm down. It's not really that important. Here we go, next one, warn them. Just as Paul warned Felix of coming judgment, I wonder if Justin Trudeau has been warned of coming judgment. I guess that's something we can pray for, that there might be someone in his proximity that are able to speak the gospel to him and Doug Ford and warn them that judgment is coming. John Murray The theologian said the sphere of the church is distinct from that of the civil magistrate. What needs to be appreciated now is that the sphere is coordinate with that of the state. The church is not subordinate to the state, nor is the state subordinate to the church. They are both subordinate to God and to Christ in his mediatorial uh, dominion as head over all things. Both church and state are under obligation to recognize this subordination and corresponding coordination of their respective spheres of operation and divine institution. Uh, Each must maintain and assert its autonomy in reference to the other and preserve its freedom from intrusion on the part of the other. When the civil magistrate trespasses the limits of his authority, it is incumbent, here it is, this is why I put this in here, it is incumbent upon the church to expose and condemn such a violation of his authority. It is the responsibility of the church to warn. Next, we have resist. Yes, Jude 3 tells us to contend for the faith. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There's one man in particular that comes to mind when it comes to resistance. How do we resist? There are a number of ways we can resist. We can resist through protesting or informing people of what's really going on. There's a lot of false narratives today. Things like this are informative to people that I, I've never heard of cultural Marxism before. I didn't even know that was a thing. I, don't know what, I didn't know that's what critical theory was all about or what it was doing. I had no idea. So we can inform people. We can vote. We can get into higher offices of authority ourselves. We can disobey civilly. We can work. And yes, under extreme, extreme circumstances, it may be, Right to fight, as in the Revolutionary War, which was a legitimate war against tyranny. Francis Schaeffer says, at a certain point, there is not only, is not only the right, but the duty to disobey the state. Not just our right, it's our duty. And when I think of resistance, I think of Andrew Vanderbilt. You, you may know him as Brother Andrew, but that's my name too, so I don't know why he gets it. Um, but Brother Andrew is very famous for smuggling Bibles into communist countries. So I grabbed a little snippet of what made him decide that he was going to start smuggling Bibles into these, really, they were socialist countries. He had been watching a socialist parade one day in one of these countries, and he said, not for a moment did I believe the young socialists were there under coercion. They marched because they believed. They marched, ate abreast, Healthy, vital, clean cut. They marched singing and their voices were like shouts. On and on they came for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, rank after rank of young men and young women. The effect was overwhelming. These were the evangelists of the 20th century. These were the people who went about shouting their good news. And part of the news was that the old shackles and superstitions of religion, the old inhibiting Ideas about God no longer held. Man was his own master. The future was his to take. Brother Andrew realized. In he's overwhelmed. He's watching these young soldiers come by, and he's like, "How is anyone ever going to topple this?" And like a light bulb moment for him when he realized it's not up to me to topple it, but I can strengthen the hand of those who are committed to obeying God first so I can do my part to resist to, what did C.S. Lewis say? Sabotage, right? Do my part, whatever that is. A Bible into the hands. C.S. Lewis says, said, open Bibles everywhere. It's the most dangerous thing for an atheist. And we've seen it. I can't tell you how many interviews that we've been through here uh, with ministry partners where I, I'm just blown away at how God is working around us all over the place. And many times it's not even to do with the church here. They end up coming here eventually, generally because it's the only option, but the only place open. But people who through lockdowns were sitting in their homes, out of their mind with anxiety, picking up a Bible, beginning to read. God speaks to them, reveals himself to them. They come, they encounter Christ and they come to faith. Incredible stories, like recent stories. God is still God. He's still on the throne and he's still working. And it's up to us to just continue to resist by preaching the gospel, getting information into people's hands, standing up when we need to, teaching authorities when we need to and so on, speaking truth to power. Next, we have the option to flee. Not a great option today, but it was true in the early church. They were able to flee. They left Jerusalem after... Stephen was martyred and so on. They scattered. And when they scattered, they went and they just preached the word wherever they went. Not a great option today because we have a global movement going on right now. Uh, Nowhere is safe. But it's still there. It's still an option. And there were men who did flee. Men like the Apostle Paul, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Knox, Bonhoeffer. Some of these men eventually were martyred. But they did flee at some point in their life. sometimes they flee, fled, flee. Sometimes they fled, sometimes they stayed, right? And all the time they were seeking to do God's will. Whatever His will was, and wherever they went, they were just preaching truth. I have one last one for us tonight: "Rejoice." Yes, Peter tells persecuted Christians under. A tyrannical government in this, 1 Peter 1, 6, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you know what's coming for you? Christian, do you know what's ahead for you tonight? (laughs) Paul couldn't measure it for us. He just said, whatever that eternal weight of glory is, I know that it surpasses anything that I could suffer in this world. So Peter is pointing people ahead to what's coming. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, Won't it be wonderful to meet Jesus with a clear conscience? We may fail at times, and there is repentance and forgiveness for that. But won't it be wonderful to to be face-to-face with Christ, knowing that we stood faithfully for what he taught us, for what he commissioned us to do? 1 Peter 4, chapter 4 Peter again says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So rejoice tonight. Rejoice in what suffering gives you. It produces character in you that cannot come any other way. Most people, most Christians who suffer will always say, although I don't want to go through that suffering again, I'm thankful it happened. I'm thankful God brought it into my life because the lessons I learned and the presence of God I know and experienced in the suffering surpassed, gave me joy that I can't even explain. It's beyond natural understanding. Rejoice in knowing the special nearness of Christ in the suffering. Rejoice in sharing Christ's sufferings. Rejoice that suffering is temporary and that paradise is eternal. And Corrie Ten Boom arrived in Ravensbrook and miraculously was able to smuggle a Bible into the concentration camp. And they spent their nights in the bunk house, in the barracks, just a bunch of women gathered around a little light, little candle, and the Bible. And Corrie and her sister would constantly be just reading and teaching. And Corey Ten Boom says, but as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear. And that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we were not shown. But as for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever widening circle to help and hope. Like waves clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. Listen to these words. Her testimony in the suffering was that the blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Rejoice. These governments will topple, they will fall, and God will still be on His throne, working out His purposes, and you and I have a very bright future. We've been called to a dark world. We've been called to a life, a mission of, again, using Lewis's words, sabotage. We are called to witness to the King of Kings who has shown himself here so we can rejoice. We have good news to tell this world.